Hey folks, I hope you're all doing well. And if you're hearing me, you know it's time for a replay of a classic podcast. One of both Bill and my favorites. This goes back to the Van Meter Visitor in Van Meter, Iowa, back in 1903, and then a classic Bigfoot encounter as well. Bill's out recording another book for all of your enjoyment, and I was traveling this week. So I hope you all enjoyed this one. It is a classic from back in February 2020. Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. Oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to Bigfoot, Terror in the Woods, Sightings and Encounters. I'm your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everybody, and once again, may I welcome you to this Alfine podcast. My name is W.J. Sheehan, author of the series Bigfoot Terror in the Woods, Sightings and Encounters, and we're so glad that you joined us today. Well, we have a power-packed show in store for you today, and we're going to get down to it momentarily, but for those of you who are new to the show... All of my writings are available in paperback, ebook, and Kindle format at Amazon.com, as well as a number of the books currently available in Audible or in audio format at Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. So please take advantage of that. You'll get a lot of listening or reading pleasure out of it, and you'll be helping us to continue do what it is we do. And now, may I introduce to you all my brother and co-host, Kevin Sheehan. Come on in, Kev. Hey, Bill. How's it going? Super duper, man. I'm chomping at the bit for today's podcast. I got some uh, really interesting uh, information here. Not that anything is uninteresting when it pertains to Bigfoot, but this is a really uh, uh, cool account I have uh, in store for the listeners today. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, there's plenty of grist for the mill out there. You know, people, you know, folks, uh, we get emails all the time from uh, listeners, which is really what this podcast is all about. It's probably 50% us and 50% you. So we encourage you, if you've seen something or heard something or have a story handed down generationally, to reach out to us at our link, which is BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com. Hit the contact button and uh, tell us what you have to say. I mean, this is a, a give and take format here, right, Kev? No doubt. It's all about the folks that are listening and uh, 
info that they provide us, both for and against uh, the views that that we t- we share between us. And Bill, I'm fresh back. I'm still a little tired, honestly. Uh, fresh back from uh, a week and a half in uh, uh, the Colorado mountains, uh, out there snowboarding, and some of the deepest powder I've been in in my life. And then also. Uh, did a pretty crazy uh, snowmobiling trip in a little town called Redcliffe out there, which was fantastic. But unfortunately, I did not see the hairy man, but I was looking <laughs> everywhere. Uh, that- I did see a couple of times. Like there was, I was looking at a ridge uh, one time late in the day, and I saw some of these like isolated. Uh, like uh, bush, bushy uh, pine trees on the ridge, and there was like a, a, a skier mixed in with them that was standing still, and I could see him move like he must have been hella skiing or something because it wasn't a resort or anything like that. And I was like, oh, what, wait, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> but then I saw the snow coming off the back of his skis in the distance. Wow, I mean, that's really cool. You know, I know uh, I was telling you before you forwarded me that one gray, misty picture of the woods. And, you know, when I look at photographs like that, you could easily enter into a scenario where somebody sees something moving or the snow falling from a branch as something parts the branch with its arm, you know? Oh, no doubt. And I, I was also uh, like this one, I, I guess a week ago Sunday, it was snowing like crazy out there. And um, I was I was up on the top of the mountain getting ready to do a run on the snowboard, and it was super quiet. It was first lift of the day, and I heard this, like, knocking on uh, on a tree. I thought it was a tree knock. Um, I still don't know what it was, but it was something knocking on a tree pretty close by. But I think it was a little too little too civilized to be running into the hairy man but i was like whoa what the heck because it's so quiet when you get that big snow and it's still coming down and you're on top of a mountain oh it's awesome you know that's interesting though the knocking uh because i i don't know you know with the amount of accounts uh i have under my belt in the books and what i hear you know the less I believe that these creatures are not willing to come near civilized areas. Could be, could be. I mean, uh, maybe you want to try out my board. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. I'd be pretty cool, Bigfoot. Maybe. Crashing down the mountain <laughs> on the board. I don't know how his feet would foot it, fit into the holders, though. That's <laughs> true, true. We'd have to open them up a bit. Out of my way. I got my size 13s, but they're not quite Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> but by the way, folks, if you're ever out there, you know, and you're, if you're a skier or a snowboarder and you're on a chairlift and you see a guy next to you that has Bigfoot stuff all over his snowboard, that's probably me. So make sure you say hello. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So. What do you have uh, tucked into your lapel today for us? Oh, we got a we got a good one, Bill. Because you know what I like: creepy stuff and old stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we got the combo here. All right, the creep old. <laughs> yeah. So this is called the Van Meter Visitor. Wow. Have you heard of this one? No, but already it's kind of uh, giving me the creeps. <laughs> van meter is like uh, when I hear van anything, I'm thinking Transylvania. You know, 
<laughs> well, this Van Meter is a town in Iowa All right. that was laid out in 1869, and the city was named for a gentleman named Jacob Rhodes Van Meter. Huh. So, and also, by the way, no offense to anyone out there named Jacob, but if your name is Van Meter and your first name is Jacob, that's like extra creepy. <laughs> <laughs> but they were, they were Dutch settlers from uh, the Netherlands, so some Dutch folks, uh-huh. and this town was incorporated in December 29th, 1877. Um, so this Van Meter visitor... Get this, Bill. It's a winged creature with a glowing horn that caused terror over a a period of a couple of months in this little tiny Iowa town 117 years ago. Unbelievable. Uh, We're talking, this is, uh, the, the town was formed in the 1870s or this is when this event happened? No, the event happened in 1903. Oh, okay. So not long, you know, 15 years after the town was uh, settled, or did I do my math wrong? I guess 25 years after the town was settled. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so get this. So in September and October, so it happened over a period of about two months, there were multiple instances of people claiming to have seen a winged bat-like creature in and around Van Meter. So you might be like, well, you know, a bat-like creature, that's not that special. Uh Well, this thing was about nine feet tall. Holy cow. Yeah. Uh, where yeah. did this? Uh, where did this? Uh, uh, where did you dig this up? What periodical or what? What not was it? In? It was. Uh, they they had like an anniversary for the town, a hundred centennial celebration, going back a few years, and there was uh, some big write ups about it in the Des Moines Register. The town of Van Meter is pretty close to Des Moines, Iowa, or West Des Moines, Iowa. And uh, and then a gentleman we'll mention in a little while wrote a book about it, or a few gentlemen wrote a book about it. Wow, which sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, no, it's incredible. I mean, these winged uh, demons or whatever they are. I mean, they, you know, it, it all falls back to the most famous, which is the Mothman. This is similar to that, by the yeah. way. You know, where it was seen by a lot of people over a short period of time, relatively short period of time. But multiple sightings, and in this case, too, multiple creatures. Wow. So we've got this Van Meter. We've got the uh, Mothman. We've hit on the Jersey Devil. All of these are winged, strange-looking, giant creatures. Exactly. Giant, giant creatures. Unbelievable. Yep. So... So this legend, oh, oh, I forgot, I forgot one of the best points. I don't know if I mentioned it, but this, this, this creature described as half human, half animal, bat-like wings, enormous bat-like wings in all the descriptions. But get this, Bill, a blinding light shooting from the horn on the top of its head. Wow. It's like a. I mean, I've never heard anything like that. No, it's like a freaking ray gun in an old. uh, Exactly. And some of the sketches, which I'll put up on BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com, it looks like something you never, ever could imagine seeing with like a ray shooting out of the top of its head like a ray gun. Now, what does the ray do? Does it stun people or. uh... (laughs) No no comment on what it actually does. (laughs) Good question. You know, and maybe it can set it to different settings like stun or kill. (laughs) 
It's like a full-ton torpedo. Exactly, like a Star Trek phaser. Wow. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, so uh, this this legend goes back, like I said, to the fall of 1903, when several of the most well-respected citizens reported this half-human, half-animal uh, with enormous, smooth bat wings flying about town. So, and they actually, I'll put up some pictures of these gentlemen that uh, reported seeing it, as well as other townspeople. Okay. And they get to another dimension here, too. They say in the descriptions that the creature is described as moving at speeds that the townspeople had never witnessed before. Yeah, well, you know, of course, at that in that day and age, uh, nothing moved at any of the speeds that we're used to today. No, you see some eagles and falcons and stuff flying right. around, but that's that's probably yeah. it. Right, and you know, other than I, a shooting star, you know or me, Kev. Like what I love most about these old, uh, old time uh, tales is I stick to my guns that these people were way more truthful and uh, honest when they spoke of or presented something to another person or persons in their community. Uh, they were more sincere by a long shot than uh, most of the people that you and I have contact with today. Uh, yeah, no, no doubt. There, about there was it. no fooling around. I mean, I'm sure you had a couple of lunatics, uh, as we do all the time. But I think in general, people looked a man or a woman in the eye and spoke with sincerity whatever they had to say, hoping they'd be well received. So, no yeah, doubt. Yep. No doubt. And so, so in addition to describing it, okay, with this shot of blinding light coming from its horned head and moving at speeds that they never saw before, they also all mentioned that it let off a powerful stench. Wow. So we got this, you know, awful smell Ooh. again, like we often have uh, around many of these cryptids, including our favorite hairy mm-hmm. man. And, you know, uh, I'm always jumping back on the demonic bandwagon, which I'm certainly on with this thing already. And no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. Always, always, always. I mean, I shouldn't say always. A lot of the time, uh, there is a stench involved with the demonic. Uh, in particular, sulfur, uh, the smell of rotting uh, flesh, things like that. You'll hear this again and again over the years. Uh, that this is definitely associated with uh, uh, demonic entities or the presence of the demonic. Yeah, we definitely had it with the goat man a couple of weeks ago. Right, there's another one, the goat man. Yeah. So uh, go ahead, bro. So this is pretty good. So, um, you know, following your advice, Bill, of uh, always packing a little lead. So (laughs) the townsfolks are out there. And they encountered the creature several times, and they fired their guns at it on many of the occasions. But it he appeared to have no impact of the on the creature, no matter what range they were at. Wow. So that's pretty wild, right? Yeah, and I'm sure a few of these guys knew how to shoot. I think so. Yeah. And then on the, on the first night it was spotted, the account says that it was flying across the building tops in the little town. And this is a little town, you know. Uh, 1903. It looks like a Wild West town in the pictures. Again, I'll put those up on the website. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next evening, it was spotted by both the town doctor 
and bank cashier uh, and a gentleman named Peter Dunn who took a plaster casting of what he what they show in quotes as great three-toed tracks. So this is uh, another one of those three-toed cryptids. Yeah, and you know the three toes is like a lizard kind of thing. Exactly. You know these exactly. long, elongated, three-pronged toes. Uh, the Rougarou uh, prints. Uh, yeah, some of the Rougarou have uh, the three toes and the little heel spike. And we're and we're gonna. You mentioned this cryptid earlier, so let me tell you a little more description here, and it'll definitely make you think of that one. On the third night, a man spotted it perched atop a telephone pole. So it must have been one of the first telephone poles. Another resident who saw it described the monster as hopping like a kangaroo, while a local, uh, a local, sorry, high school teacher likened it to a devil. Wow. So it sounds a lot like the Jersey Devil, too, right? Absolutely. And, you know, when you think of hopping, uh, hopping reminds me of the birds I see on the ground. Yes. You know, they, yes. they the wings, uh, they don't really walk, although I've seen hawks on the ground kind of strut along. But yep. most of the birds, the smaller birds, they hop. You know, they jump around. They spring around, you know. No doubt about it. Maybe this is part spring-heeled jack. Maybe. There you go. <laughs> he, he seemed a little, yeah, you know, never know. He seemed a little more human. Uh, extra freaky. Yeah, I love all these freakiness we've covered <laughs> over the past, Bill. They, they all come up. I'm sure we're missing half of them, too. Yeah. Um, so, so frightened and also angry by what they had witnessed, the townsfolk followed the creature to an abandoned coal mine, that was near an old brickyard right on the edge of town where they heard noises coming from the mine. Wow. And this is a quote. It reads a little funny. Um, I guess it's, you know, older uh, grammar or whatever. But it's from the Des Moines Daily News from October 3rd, 1903. Wow. And it reads, presently, the noise opened up again as though Satan and a regiment of imps were coming forth for battle. Now, this was out of the mine? Yeah, out of the mind. Wow. So they definitely thought it was uh, something satanic as well. Wow. You know, and see, this is what people relate to who are spiritual and uh, in a quiet community and without a lot of distractions. When something like this happens, this is really an event. This is yep. this is not something that's brushed off. I mean, you can imagine this little town was a buzz with uh, a oh, conversation no about what no was going doubt. on. Just like, just like the Mothman sightings, right, which, which occurred over a relatively short period of time, at least the, the original historic sightings. You know, people claim to have seen him since then and that. But, but that original set of sightings was hundreds of sightings, I think, over a 30-day period or so, as I recall. Yeah, this thing was a regular visitor around the area. Yeah, and get this. So uh, not only did they see one monster, but they they write about seeing that seeing the monster appear together with a smaller version of itself. Holy smoke. Yep. The sp- the spawn of Van Mita. <laughs> Son of Jacob. <laughs> Son of Jacob. Yeah. 
Super creepy. <laughs> and uh, so then they, they write about uh, one of the encounters they had with the, uh, with the townspeople. And the quote here is fantastic. It says, the reception the creatures received would have sunk the Spanish fleet. But aside from unearthly noise and peculiar odor, they did not seem to mind it, but slowly descended toward the shaft of the old mine. And the creature was never seen again. You know, so at that point, they never saw it again. And they say the amazing tale has survived and been retold for a couple of generations. And uh, now it was written about in a book. Let me tell you about the book here. Um, I want to make sure I get the title correct. Uh, The Van Meter Visitor, A True and Mysterious Encounter with the Unknown. And uh, it's by uh, three authors, uh, last name Lewis, Voss, and Nelson. Wow, pretty cool. Yeah, super cool. Yeah, no, that's uh, the ancient stuff uh, is really incredible to uh, take hold of because... uh, uh, you know, it's just, it's out of our realm. It, it's from a time and place where there was far fewer people around. Everything was still kind of primitive and very much old school. And you can only imagine uh, man, woman, and child, what they were thinking uh, going out of their homes uh, under the fear of this thing being around or seen hopping around on rooftops. Uh, the, the the mothers were probably guarding their children, you know. Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, uh, the uh, you know these authors they said when they were out there talking to different people again, it's Chad Lewis, Noah Voss, and Kevin Lee Nelson, uh, and then a local librarian by the name of Jolena Walker helped them find some of the some of the some of the materials, you know, I guess from the town archives to write about it. Um, they talk about how it must have completely terrorized the town seeing this thing. Again, you know, nine foot tall, bat-like creature, horn on its head, you know, and I'll, you know the sketches in that, it looks like a unicorn horn, and then with a bright ray of light shining out of the horn in front of That's it. That's crazy. I mean, what the heck? Now, did, uh, I mean, if you saw that today, you'd be terrified, I, let alone 1903. I'd be flipping out. Exactly. Uh, you know, and again, uh, no matter how big you are or what you think your skills are, what are you going to do against something like that? No. You know, yeah. now, did anybody uh, in any of the reports, was anybody hit with this beam of light or was it? They don't mention anything. Other, yeah. So it's, it's very weird, man. Very freaking yeah. weird. Yeah, I would say, though, definitely some kind of demonic thing. You know, it does definitely. Uh, suggests you know that it was something that was conjured up, yeah, and uh, and then disappeared. Yeah, yeah. And there were things out there. I mean, you know, the human mind or uh, a human being, we look at things that we know or that we've learned of, and I would venture to say that over the the uh, the years, the decades, the millennia. That any time a human being sees something that is out of the realm of its knowledge base, they look at this or we look at this as some type of magic, something odd, something, you know. But the reality is there are so many things out there that we have no knowledge of and possibly never will. 
We're left guessing. Uh, we're left to talk about it. Uh, and for people who speak about it, uh, you're left holding the ball of ridicule uh, for having done so. And the Bigfoot really falls into that same realm. Uh, not so much, no, not so much as uh, a freaky deaky event as uh, the Van Meter uh, devil or whatever this thing is, but still, Bigfoot has components to it that people have no understanding of, and therefore they look at it as like this weird or magical type of thing, and uh, th- it's held in disbelief. Yeah, no doubt about it's a very, it. No doubt very about it. So super cool. And again, you know, getting back to how you opened up uh, today's podcast, Bill, any of you out there in Iowa or maybe you're from Iowa and you remember hearing about the uh, Van Meter visitor, you know, give us a shout out. Send us send us a note. Yeah. And listen, if it turns out that Van Meter was your great grandpa, we'd like to hear about that, too. That's also cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Bill, Grandpa used to tie one on and put on his suit. <laughs> and if, you ma- if you're mad at me for saying that Jacob Van Meter is a creepy name, and you do reach out to us, maybe we'll send you an autographed copy of a book. Hey, you know, that's a good idea, Kev. <laughs> With an apology in it. That's a good idea. Let's have a little contest today before I get into my account here. Uh, what do you think we should ask of the uh, listeners who want to enter? Mm-hmm. You're throwing me here. All right. You got me so cold. How about this? And how about Creepy, that? How about creepiest <laughs> small town cryptid? Yeah. Tell <laughs> us, uh, contact me and tell me what is your favorite cryptid aside from Bigfoot. And uh, I'm just going to toss him into a hat and. Uh, one of you guys is going to win an autographed copy of one of my books. How's that? And I would include, like, why is he your favorite, too? Yeah, just give me a little hello and uh, tell me a little bit about it. And and who knows, if we haven't spoken about this cryptid, maybe we'll do oh, a yeah. little spot on that, Kev. No doubt about it. I'm, you know, always open to some new ideas. Okay, so uh, now for those of you who don't know me and for those of you who do, Uh, If you've read uh, some of the volumes of my book, I actually have two accounts that I've named the Bone Pile. And for obvious reasons, as you read them or hear about them. But I've also heard uh, through other people in the Bigfoot community uh, over the past several years of other accounts of people finding piles of bones uh, relative to what is believed to be the Bigfoot creature. And I like this particular bone pile account because this guy had the wherewithal to do a little experimentation, a little proving out, if you will, of what he felt and what he saw to kind of bring it to its conclusion, at least in his own mind. So let me dig into this here and just follow along carefully. And again, this is why I like uh, many of the listeners who write in and tell us about accounts, because they have an eye for detail. Uh, Being experienced woodsmen and or hunters or trappers or whatever it may be, that the average person does not uh, hold 
We don't know what you know because you're out there and we're not. So listen in here. This is really, really unusual. Uh, This story came to me by way of a fellow named Terry Wade, a resident of the state of Washington. And just listen in here as we hear what Terry had to say. As I thought about having this discussion with you today, I felt it would be best to lay a little groundwork as to who I am and what I do. It may help to add credence to what I am about to say to both of to both you and your readers. First of all, I am a third generation grocer and now food wholesaler. Today, uh, excuse me, this business, which I now run and own, was started as a grocery store in New York in 1905. Today, having taken over the business many years ago from my father, we are strictly a wholesale vegetable distributor to the restaurant and food service industry, predominantly in New York, Connecticut, and New Jersey. I have a great managerial uh, staff and employee base that affords me a surplus of free time with me being able to accomplish most of what I have to do via phone and internet. Since I don't really need to be there, except for the occasional fly-in, I have lived in numerous locations throughout the country over the past 20 years or so. Currently, I'm in Washington. Now, in preparation to talk with you, he was speaking with me, I was trying to settle on a number in my mind as to how many days I have spent in the woods hunting. To the best of my knowledge, I came up with somewhere between 12 and 1500 days on the hunt. So this is a guy who is spending a lot of time uh, stomping around in the woods and hunting game. This would be inclusive of both small and large game, including waterfowl and eight safaris. Yeah, I am reasonably proficient in the disciplines of rifle, shotgun, and bow, and consider myself at this point in the game a decent tracker as well. I have seen a Bigfoot, but that's not why I contacted you. I contacted you about some evidence that I had found and a little experiment that I did in hopes of furthering the cause of Bigfoot being real. It's not that I need anyone to convince me, you understand. So I like this guy already, and and we're getting into it here. Now, listen closely. In the fall of 2006... While stalking some deer in the fringes of the Piacetan wilderness, I had a large Bigfoot pass above my position on a hillside while I was on the hunt below. As I said, I'm not here to speak of this sighting because I frankly don't have much to say about it. I saw it, it was real, and that's it. What I do want to talk about is the subsequent bone pile that I came across and my experimentation regarding it. In 2008, I was stalking in the area of the Henry M. Jackson Wilderness, 
west of Ceylon. When I came into an area that was devoid of, shall I say, all warm-blooded animals. It must have been for well over a mile before I realized that there was absolutely no creatures, be they great or small, to be found in this area. A fact that was extremely unusual in and of itself. A short time later, I came upon what I will describe as a small clearing, which was scattered with the bones of just about everything that lives in these parts. I'm talking from skulls to legs and everything in between. Now, it's not that I stood there counting or anything like that, but there were so many bones from so many different animals that it would be impossible to determine what belonged to what. And just so you understand, if you were to shoot a deer in the woods and leave it be, in six months' time, there would be zero trace of the animal's body left. In fact, it is my opinion that the skull is the last to go because that is virtually the only thing I ever find when hunting. Perhaps there is less marrow in the skull, but other than that, I really don't know why this is. Regardless, the fact that all of these bones were here and that there was no wildlife around really got my attention. I decided to do some experiments in the area over the next year or so. It was some three months later that I came into the same area again and took down a deer about two miles away from this bone pile. Now, what I did was not right as it pertains to hunting, but this was an experiment, and for just this one time, I broke all the rules. I shot the deer and left it in the woods so that I could come back to it over time and log what happened to its carcass. I had seen a show about a place called The Body Farm many years ago. This was an outdoor forensics laboratory where human donor bodies were allowed to remain in various states outside in order to determine the rates of decomposition under a variety of circumstances. This study would then better enable law enforcement to determine the time of death for bodies found buried, laying in the woods, or even in the trunks of cars, for that matter. As far as the deer was concerned, and my inability to come in here every day, I had determined that somewhere between four and six months was needed for this deer to vanish without so much as a trace. There was absolutely nothing left, and this had happened less than two miles away from the bone pile, which was still there and untouched. I must also mention that any hunter worth their salt will tell you that no predatory animal, be they bear, lion, wolf, fox, coyote, or anything else, will take their kill back to the same location over and over again. Whatever they don't eat will be eaten by something else and fairly quickly. So, having done my little experiment only two miles from the site of the bone pile, I went back and set up three game cameras in low and high positions near the pile and left them for a month. 
When I came back in and retrieved the cameras, not so much as one picture had been taken. I reset the area and came back a month later, finding two of the cameras missing and one smashed on the ground. It looked like it was hit from the front side with what I will describe as a punch. I say this because there was no damage such as a rock or a log would have done to the plastic that was visible to my eyes. I took the camera home and disassembled it on my workbench in hopes of salvaging the card. Thankfully, it was unaffected by the assault. When I reviewed the card, there were two pictures. In the first image, I saw what appeared to be the dark fingers of a hand that must have come from the side into view, but it was very fuzzy. The second image was completely dark, as though the lens was facing or being held against something dark in color. And that was it. So, after having performed my experiments, my own personal conviction is this. The bone pile is a place where Bigfoot is returning to over and over again to eat. For what reason, I don't know. Secondly, the animals in the area surrounding this place will have nothing to do with what this creature had touched, steering clear of the entire area for quite some distance. Again, the reason for this being a mystery at this time. It's also rather remarkable that as I came into the area the first time, it was at about a mile away that all life was seemingly gone in the woods. And yet, at two miles distance, my deer had been completely consumed. This made it clear to me that the Bigfoot, if it was in fact a Bigfoot, that the Bigfoot saliva on these bones, or something about it, had created a large barrier of some sort around its kill site. At least one thing is now clear in my own mind. Nothing in the forest wants anything to do with Bigfoot. Within any other species, animals will contend for another's kill. And if nothing else, they will return to get their fill of what another may have left behind. Super cool. You know, and I like this guy, Kev. Because oh, it's a great account, especially coming from someone that is, you know, probably one of the strongest outdoorsmen we've heard from, and we've heard from many. Yeah, and in particular, what I like about this man is that he's forthcoming with his own personal beliefs as to what he discovered or did not discover, but he's also at the ready to say, I don't know. Right. So what it is, uh, it, it's like the old saying in my books that I use again and again, or the people use again and again. I know what I've seen, and that's it. You know, right. what, what can I tell you? I saw a helicopter fly over my house this morning. I saw a Bigfoot when I was skiing in Breckenridge. What do you say? 
Yeah, I, I can't, for some reason, I just can't recall what the name of the town in upstate New York with the famous Bigfoot sighting, right, where the law law officer, policeman, you know, um, says, I'm standing there and I'm looking straight in the eyes, you know, close by. I think it was like off of the fender of his police cruiser. I'm looking at something that I've been taught my whole life did not exist, yeah. but yet it's there. And there it is. And by the way, that's Whitehall. Thank you. Yeah, so, I knew you knew the name. But uh, <laughs> so, you know, here's this guy. He does this elaborate experiment. He kills a deer in an area where he's wondering maybe this is out of range of something happening. But lo and behold, his deer gets consumed. There's nothing left when he comes back. Hmm. And yet, within the boundaries of this bone pile, the bones are intact and there every time he goes there, which just doesn't happen in nature. I mean, we had we had that fellow months and months and months ago uh, who told me personally uh, that was the hunter down in Texas, by the way, boar hunting. Uh, mm-hmm. He was the guy who told me about uh, hares and rabbits and uh, ground squirrels and porcupines. Porcupines, uh, right. yep. They have to gnaw on these bones to keep their teeth from growing out of their head. And uh, it's just it just does not happen where bones and piles of bones are left around basically forever. So yeah, he also talks about the weird stuff going on with his trail cams, yeah. right? I mean, it reminds me of uh, um, I finally caught up on uh, Expedition Bigfoot. That's the name of the show, right? Yeah, Tom? no, that was excellent. Where uh, where they have the trail cams set and they appear to have been moved, and then they they finally do catch the image of you know, what looks to be like from the hip down of the leg of a Bigfoot. Yeah, and, you know, uh, relative to their uh, own experiments on that show, take note of the fact that in many frames, the camera was triggered, but the camera was also facing into a dark woods And it was very difficult, of course, in the course of a show where we really can't freeze it and scrutinize it. But, you know, who's to say that if you looked at that picture really closely, there may be a darker image inside of the overall dark image. Now, my buddy, Nate Bowling. Nate, by the way, hello down there, you and your buddies. Good to uh, hope you're listening and uh, good to know you. Nate goes out uh, in uh, Bama area, I think around the Tennessee River and some other areas over there. And uh, they're out at night uh, looking for these boogers. And he's got a couple of shots, one in particular that's very interesting, where if you didn't freeze it and study it carefully, you'd miss it altogether. But there is the dark outline of what certainly appears to me to be an enormous, broad Bigfoot creature in the darkness. And uh, again, if you didn't study it and you just flashed through the picture, you'd think there was nothing there. So it's, it's, it's unusual, you know, and uh, 
you know, obviously the hunt continues here. We have people all over the place that are trying as best they can with their own resources and time to uh, make some sense out of this. And uh, you're all greatly appreciated by myself and my brother, by the way, for your work. And uh, here we have another guy running his experiments as best as he can with his resources and time, uh, trying to make some sense out of an unusual situation uh, that he runs across in the woods. Very odd, huh? Very cool. Yep. Very cool. So uh, that's that's a special account. Uh, I like it a lot. Yep. Yep. So what do we have in store today from our uh, listeners? Yeah, we got some good uh, good listener mail. Thank you again, everyone, for sending in your uh, your ideas and observations and comments. So we start out in Idaho with Patty. And Patty writes, I was particularly baffled by the accounts of rock apes in Asia, especially having been encountered, encountered during a wartime scenario. This is the first I've heard of it and was wondering how such a thing could remain under the radar, so to speak. Great show. Fantastic. And Patty, uh, you know, first of all, thanks for chiming in with us. You and me both, and I'm sure Kevin, Patty, are baffled by this rock ape thing that seemingly came out of nowhere on the podcast. Right, Kev? No doubt. Yeah, you know, like we had it referenced a couple of times in uh, in viewer mail, right? And uh, by by different folks, more than a couple of times. And uh, I always say viewer mail, Bill. I don't know what's wrong with yeah, me. it's okay. It's, I mean, this is so vivid to me. I think we're looking at it, um, <laughs> but it's listener mail, <laughs> exactly. But we've had it come up, you know, several times in listener mail, and then we started looking into it more, and it's pretty cool. I mean. Getting to your point of how you couldn't have heard about it along the way, you know, one is, of course, my guess would be these brave folks that were over there fighting um, saw some awful stuff, you know, during their tours of duty. And um, they probably just don't talk about it much, didn't talk about it much when they came back. Um, Or, uh, you know, seeing these rock apes was kind of compared to all the other atrocities that they saw and experienced every day, the rock apes were really nothing and not worth mentioning, so to speak. Yeah, you know, Kevin, something that comes to my mind, when you're coming back from a war situation, these guys' heads are spinning. I mean, they're they're rattled. And maybe they think to themselves, best left unsaid or people are going to think I lost my mind over there. Uh, as well as, uh, you know, having the uh, crap scared out of me uh, being in combat. So uh, uh, and I think that's a great I think that's a great point, Bill, because they were already, you know, not given a great welcome by any stretch when they came home. And then uh, um, they didn't need another reason to, you know, be discriminated against or, you know, hassled. That's correct. And, you know, something. Uh, a big shout out from me and my brother to all of our veterans out there, and in particular, as we're talking about these rock apes today, to the Vietnam vets, we appreciate everything that you did and the people that you are, and uh, kudos to you. Uh, I don't give a rat's ass what kind of welcome you got or didn't get. 
I don't understand all of that nonsense. But what I do understand that you are some brave, brave men and all of our vets are to be honored uh, in every way, shape or form that we can. So no doubt. And especially, you know, in uh, in the crazy world we're in right now between the COVID-19 virus and all of the unrest between governments and the folks that are that are serving now. Uh, we definitely uh, have a lot of thanks and gratitude for all of you. Yeah, you know something, and not, I don't know how we get it. Well, I know how we got on the bandwagon. We're, we're uplifting and supporting our troops is what we're doing here for a minute. Right. Uh, I was at the gym yesterday morning. Uh, there's an older guy that uh, I catch down there working the circuit, and then we get to talking. Uh, I see this guy a lot, and yesterday I learned that he has two artificial wrists. Hmm. And I said to myself, well, I mean, there's a lot of things we don't know about people we meet, right? So the conversation opens up that he was grabbing the basket on the side of a Huey in Vietnam, uh, getting prepared to adjust it or move it around uh, to put a body in it. I didn't get into with him whether the body was dead or a wounded, whatever. And... Some creep fired a rifle shot that went through both of his wrists Mm. while he was steadying the basket. Can you believe that? Mm. The bullet came across one side through one wrist, left or right, it doesn't matter to me, and went directly through the other wrist in a straight line while he was holding uh, this basket. Wow. Yeah, just incredible. So, again, guys, we love you. We appreciate you. And God bless you is my sincere prayer. Yep. All right, let's go to Willard in Scotland. I don't have a good Scottish accent, Bill. How about you? Well, I will say that Willard's probably a strange fella. <laughs> but Willard writes, these stories are mind-boggling. I especially like some of the more ancient ones that you dig up. You are correct in that. During older days and times, people were bound by their word to one another, with their stories and accounts meaning much more, perhaps, than in today's society. It is fascinating to me that me what those who have gone before us experienced on their own, and many times without any help available should something go wrong. Truly, the American pioneers, I'm sorry, your American pioneers, Willard writes, were very brave people indeed. Keep the stories coming. Wow. Good stuff, Willard. Yeah, you know, Willard comes from Scotland, which has a very rich and ancient history. Uh, and they've had their trials and tribulations, as we all know as well. Yeah, definitely some battle-hardened warriors yeah. uh, uh, coming from that soil. No doubt. And But he, he has the wherewithal to recognize that our own settlers, having come, in, have come over to a new land, definitely had their hands full and their sheer of uh, fearful events to deal with. And uh, there is no doubt that people who encountered these creatures were not fooling around. I mean, they they just, and we learned that from Teddy Roosevelt's uh, book, The Wilderness Hunter. Uh, 
he was just describing what he seen and what he exper- what he saw and what he experienced and sharing it with you. Uh, and I think, uh, Willard, you're correct that these people were brave and a man's word was his bond. And uh, if they said they saw something uh, and you made a face or mocked them, you might be in a fist fight in the street. No doubt. You know? No doubt. So from now we go to the great state of Texas from Arnie. Mm. And Arnie writes, there seems to be no end to the activity in and around, Bill, what place in Texas? It's got to be the big thicket. The big thicket, yes. <laughs> we get a lot of, a lot of mail from the big thicket. So uh-huh. He says again, Arnie writes, there seems to be no end to the activity in and around the big thicket. Many investigators are hassled by the authorities going into the area. What is your opinion on why they would do so? Love the podcast. You're both the best. Well, you know. Well, thanks, uh, Arnie. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think I may have mentioned it before, Bill, but I certainly think the authorities have a tough job to do. You know, so they, they hear of these uh, sightings and things like that, and it brings out the crowds. Uh, and the crowds are made up of, you know, good people and bad people, but probably around the big thicket, all the people are loaded for bear. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's no doubt about <laughs> it. Some auto- automatic, semi-automatic uh, weapons, and they're all going into the big thicket, perhaps, and, you know, could shoot at anything that moves at that stage. Yeah. So uh, I, I, my, my takeaway, Arnie, would be that they're probably just trying to protect you. Um, of course, you know, I'm sure there could be theories and are theories that it's a bit of a conspiracy and they're trying to hide something. But I tend to come down on the side of, you know, these people have a difficult job to do. They might just be trying to protect you from one another. Yeah. And I, I'm sure some of these guys in law enforcement are encountering some real arrogant SOBs yeah. uh, out there when they're doing their job and people marching around around with the. Uh, you know, really, real. Not that any weapon isn't deadly, but you know what I'm getting at, Kev. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and and you know, generally in Texas, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Uh, you know, generally the folks are, uh, you know, often armed better than the police are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think somebody. I got a. I got a funny story. I think the listeners will like, and you'll like, Bill. I don't think I told you this, but from. One of my friends uh, that I used to work with, he's uh, uh, a resident of the great state of Texas, and um, uh, he was telling me that one time he and his wife were uh, driving along, I think they were driving between Dallas and San Antonio, and they got pulled over by a Texas state trooper. Um, And the trooper came to the side of the vehicle and said, uh, uh, you know, before they asked for the license and registration, they said, you know, do you have any weapons in the car that I should know about? And uh, I'll mess up, I'll mess up this inventory, but I'll get it close. And uh, he said, well, yes, you know, uh, I have a, a, a Glock nine millimeter on my ankle. My wife has one in her purse. Um, there's another handgun in the glove compartment. And there's a, a Mac-10 and a shotgun in the trunk of the car. <laughs> this, is, this is true. This is a true story. And uh, the trooper said to him, um, you know, I won't say his name, but we'll say it's Mr. Smith. He said, uh, Mr. Smith, um, what are you afraid of? 
And he said, absolutely nothing. <laughs> True story. True story. Oh, I love that. I love it. Yeah, yeah. And all the weapons were legal, you know, so he didn't get in trouble. You know, the, the policemen, like in a lot of states, they ask you when they come up, you know, just for their own safety, like... If they ask you to reach into the glove box or something like that, do you have any weapons in the car? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we went through the whole inventory. It's fantastic. <laughs> My favorite part, Kev. What are you afraid of? Absolutely, <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Absolutely <laughs> nothing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That was excellent. All right, oh. folks. So, so, um, that's it for this week. Um, we really thank you for your continued five-star reviews. Please, uh, while you're listening right now from your favorite podcast player, just uh, give us a swipe and give us uh, five stars. It allows us to keep producing uh, great podcasts and also continuing to improve our podcast over time. So thank you very much. Yes, and my fine-feathered friends, if you also would like to be able to make this statement, that I am afraid of absolutely nothing. Always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight.